1: Hello and welcome to the second tier podcast. I'm Ryan Ilks, and I'm joined by the Jack Grealish to my Miguel Almirón. It's Justin Peach.
2: Good day to you, Ryan.
1: Justin, what time did you get to the Derby game yesterday?
2: I got there at four minutes past three, um, just as David McGoldrick scored the first goal. Didn't miss it this time. Um, I missed the last one, I think. Um, but yeah, no, quite happy. Yeah, I was, was looking. You did I
1: not. You did not deserve to see. That goal. Um, <laughs> if you continue to turn up late, you don't deserve to see any goals, as far as I'm concerned. On the show this week, we're joined by Ian Robertson from We Are Luton Town. Ian, how's it going?
3: Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah,
1: Good stuff. Also with us is Ant Northgreaves from the To Hull and Back podcast. Ant, how are
3: we? Uh, we're all right, mate.
1: Thank you. Are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Welcome to the number one championship-specific podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. We're going to go through all the games in the championship from the past weekend, talk about some of the news from the past few days, and then we'll finish off right at the end with Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. So, Blackburn made it four wins on the bounce after beating Hall 1-0. This result leaves the Tigers sitting 18th in the championship. And how was the game?
0: Um, It was a frustrating one, really, because we actually played okay. Um, you know we're fully aware of how good Blackburn are aside this year you know very, the very the the new manager's gone very organised you know they're very hard to attack against you know when they're defending they've got about six or seven players down at the back but they've got players like Diaz Gallagher and uh, Dolan that can you know hurt you at the other end on the counter attack and a lot of young players in there a lot of energy they work the work great with them for the, the full 90 minutes is high so you know if you have a five ten minute spell where you're a little bit under the weather they will take advantage of that and I think we we, we <clears throat> on the most part we defended well. The build-up play was okay. Um, we just didn't really create enough chances to to have that little bit of luck uh, to get a goal to try and you know either level it up or take the lead earlier. We just kind of as soon as Blackburn got the lead, we were we were always chasing the game, and it was really hard to break them down. But it, it's not a defeat that you know we're walking away from feeling really bad about. It's you know they're a very good team. They're up second at the minute, so um, we'll we'll take positives from the performance at least. Well, the word on the street, Ants, is
1: that Liam Rosinia could be appointed as the new manager in the coming week. What are you thinking with that one?
0: Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I think, you know, fans, it's very easy to go to a former player that you know is, is really appreciated amongst the fan base being a manager, and sometimes it can go wrong. But Rosinia is very highly respected in the world of football. He's a very intelligent man. Um, you know, he's he's, he's played in, a, in at the highest level as a player uh, quite regularly, and Obviously, he's been here before and the fans love him and he loves the area too. So, it kind of seems like a match made in heaven. Yes, he's not got ample managerial experience. Um, You know, maybe there could have been a case to claim that we we should be looking for a manager that's got that championship experience and knows how to steer us to the upper echelons of the league. But I suppose managers have got to start somewhere. And someone like Rosini, I think this is the perfect kind of opportunity for him because we're a club that's in transition. Uh, we've obviously got the new owners uh, now um, that's willing to back managers. Um, so as long as we're willing to give him time and let him uh, incorporate his style of playing and and, and he fits with Adjun's um, well-documented um, uh, vision of, of attacking football, you know, the old, I'd rather lose 3-2 than draw 0-0 <laughs> comment that he made on Sky that time. Um, but yeah, I think, it's especially if he keeps Andy Dawson involved in the coaching staff, um It could be quite an astute um, appointment, I think.
1: So, what's going to be top of his to-do list if he
0: were to come in in the next week? Sort the defence out, hands down. Um, You know, we've got we signed ample attacking talent um, in the summer. Uh, But our strong point last season, you know, one of the rare ones is that we had a good defence. We just couldn't score goals. So, then the summer came around and we signed a lot of attacking players and the defence relatively stayed the same. But we've... We're, we're, in, in essence were worse attacking than we was last season but the defence has also suffered too and I think there's a, an imbalance in the squad especially in midfield, you know, we've not really got any biters in there no more, we lost Honeyman and Smallwood and I don't think we really replaced that work ethic and, and, and willingness to do the dirty work, um, we signed some more flair players like Sarri and Woods players like that but um, we've we got to a point now where we're conceding near enough every game, I think we've only got one clean sheet all season so Absolutely, the defence needs sorting out, whether it's a tactical shape or a couple of personnel changes that need sorting. Um, I think that's definitely got to be the first priority when he comes in, stop conceding goals. Yeah, Blackburn stay second with this win. Feds say,
1: we've still got a few doubts, Justin, over whether they'll be able to stay up there. But let's give them and John Dole, John Toll-Thomason some praise for getting there in the first place. Uh, please do it, because I'm not sure how much longer <laughs> I can cope with all the mouth-foaming Blackburn fans in my Twitter DMs.
2: Yeah, they deserve a lot of credit. I think this was a really good away performance because they limited Hull to no shots on target. A um, couple of half chances got into some good areas at times, but more or less they were by far, by far the better team. Um, they've won four on the bounce, and I think you know you can you could talk about data all day and the underlying data and what have you. But at the end of the day, they are getting wins on the board and and. You know, winning winning is a massive thing. It's massive for confidence. Um, you can see it in the in the players that they they, they believe in um, the system. They do they believe in the side of place. Um, Sammy Schmodix, for example, came in, got a goal after um, being a squad player or, or looking like he was going to become a squad, squad player for the team, but he came in and made an impact. Um, they're in a really good place, Blackburn. I expect them to to build on it. I think obviously the only criticism you can have of them is is not creating enough chances, putting your limit to limit the opposition to so little. Um, it's a massive, massive positive. Luton one,
1: Sunderland won. I'll apologise to you, Ian, and all Luton fans, because you never seem to win when we get you on the show. Uh, it's the set- second-tier curse, unfortunately. But how was the game?
3: Yeah, it was good. Too. Well, at least it was a draw. It's normally a loss, isn't it? But um, I think it was It was great we kind of nullified any any bad play from the Watford game. We kind of got over that, so a draw we'll kind of take. But um, it's a good game. I was surprised by Sunderland, actually. They didn't look a bad outfit to say where they've been going in the league. Um Clark and Embleton, both really, really good players for them. Um and and really ran the run the channels in the in the second half. But yeah, really good game. Entertaining game for a neutral, I'd say.
1: Carlton Morris got on the score sheet again. He's now on eight goals for the season. Only Jerry Yates has more goals in the championship this season. <laughs> How impressed have you been with him since he joined in the <clears throat> summer, Ian?
3: Yeah, obviously I was excited when he signed. He's was a really good signing. I thought oh you know, he'll add to what we've already got, but he's even surpassed that. Um, he's already surpassed his his total for last season, which was seven with Barnsley in 28 games, I think it was, and we're on 17 now. So, um, obviously, he's getting the service. Again, he was one of our standout players. We talked it yesterday. He just, he, He's really good at running the channels and, and getting the ball back and then moving forward and pressing. So, uh, you know, really, really pleased with him.
1: Yeah, you're always quite level-headed when it comes to expectations for Lutonny. And I think last time you came on, you said you'd be happy with the top-half finish. Can I tempt you into casting your gaze slightly higher than that?
3: Yeah, at the beginning of the season, I said eight, eight for ninth, you know, which were in and around the area, so I wasn't too far away. But I think we deserve to have a few more points on the board. But that said, we haven't really got out of second gear apart from a couple of games this season so far. So... It all depends on what happens with the World Cup interval and getting players fit again. We're missing Lansbury, which is a bit of a miss. So there's lots of factors that are kind of inside that. But I think I think we can flirt with the playoffs. There's no doubt about it. We've shown what we can do when we're on it. It's just being on it more often than not. and We'll be in and around it. Anything on Sunderland from this game, Justin?
2: It was, a, it was a decent performance. Um, as Ian said, I think Sunderland contributed to a very good game. Um, I think that's just telling of the attacking talent that Sunderland have got. Um, obviously, there was uh, Clark and, and Embleton who were very effective. Uh, Diallo looked quite sharp as well. And I think Ellis Sims getting back into this game, getting some minutes under his belt is a massive, massive thing for Sunderland because we've said for weeks now, if they get a number nine in that team, completely changes the dynamic of them and they can start to build upon some good results.
1: And you've got to leave us now. So thank you for your uh, work on the second tier today. But Ian, we'll come back to you later to play Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. It's now time for Justin and I to go around the grounds and we'll kick things off with West Brom, who didn't get off to a good start with life under Carlos Corbran. He lost his first game in charge 2-0 at home to Sheffield United. Joining us now from the Baggies podcast is Louis Bent. Louis, what did you make of the game?
4: I think, you know, ultimately it wasn't too bad. I think conceded two very sloppy goals uh, in the first half, in, in relatively quick succession, I think they were both within the first 25 minutes, and I think that makes that kind of means that the game's disappeared from you. You know, you're unlikely to score two goals, uh, you know, in the, in that amount of time for the rest of the game against a solid Sheffield United side who you know, are very organised, uh, very good out of possession. So, yeah, I think those two goals really hurt us. I think we looked fairly toothless in attack. We lacked a lot of uh, a real clinical edge. I think we created a few chances, but I think you know, you, you look at the, the chances that we did create, did we really test Adam Davison goal for 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 Sheffield United? And I don't think that we did. So yeah, those two goals really killed us off, you know, in those in those in that first half. And then failing to really create clear cut chances and test the goalkeeper throughout the rest of the game really, really did hurt.
1: Yeah, this was of course Carlos Corbrand's first game in charge. Were you happy with the appointment,
4: Louis? Yeah, I was very happy with the appointment of Corbran. I think he's an excellent young coach, and I think this group of players need to be coached into a system uh, that that's going to work best for them. Which I don't think Bruce was doing. The only, you know, annoyance I have is the amount of time it took to appoint Corbran. I think it was 16 days before uh, between Bruce's sacking and Corbrand's appointment. So I think that was that was three games in there that you've you've kind of just missed out on by by you know not appointing the manager almost straight away you know not having that plan in place to to get the manager in so he can implement his ideas earlier but at the moment, you know we, we've obviously lost those. We, you know, we lost two out of those three games. Now we've lost Sheffield United. Corbrand's going to take time to bed in those ideas, and you know, at the moment we're bottom of the league. So how long is it going to take? You know, to to, to for Corbrand to bed in his ideas. You know, the World Cup break coming in three de- uh, in three games time, it's going to be really difficult for him to get them out of this rut before the World Cup break comes and stops it. Yeah, and Louis, give us a
1: quick word on how West Brom as a football club are being run, because we've had plenty of messages
4: about fans who are concerned about that particular aspect. Very disappointed with how the club's being run at the moment. I think that's probably a little bit of an understatement. You know, the whole fan base feels that, you know, the controlling shareholder or owner, Guachuan Lai, should be putting more in to the club you know there's very little structure behind the scenes at board level footballing knowledge at board level it's literally just Ron Gurley working out uh, and, and the head of recruitment Ian Pearce working out recruitment and and player signings and you know the lack of investment from the board and the the loans being taken out of the club is is really disappointing to see I mean it's really hurting us to be honest um you know the transfer. We paid paid no transfer fees apart from for Brandon Thomas and in the summer and the previous summer as well. All free agents and loan moves. It's really disappointing to see how the club's being run. And to be honest, it, it you know it, it it could get a lot worse. I feel there's more to uncover than 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 the perhaps has so far. Cheers, Louis. Yeah, Justin. You text me
1: to say watching West Brom defend is worse than passing kidney stones. Do you care mm-hmm.
2: to uh, expand on that? What about? The time I passed my kidney stones, or past kidney stones, or about West Brom's defending, or my thoughts on West Brom's defending? I was thinking more West Brom's defending. Okay, okay, now that's certainly a better story anyway, or a better better, better, better insight. Um, yeah, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. The first goal was, was horrendous, but the second goal um, was just as bad, I think, Um West Brom got caught in between pressing and staying, so there was only a few players going to press and engage with Sheffield United, and it left a massive gap. It was literally just one ball into Iliman Dai's feet, um, and then he t- takes two players out of the game by turning. Um, it was just horrendous. It was it was switched off, passive defending, and honestly, it was. I'm not even a supporter of West Brom, and if I was in that ground, I'd be effing, Jeffin going absolutely bonkers at experienced players not doing their jobs. And I feel for Carlos Corbran because it just shows how mighty of a task he's got. And we said it um, in the week or last week, just how big his checklist is to get sorted. It is a die situation at West Brom. Rumour has it Eric Peters is still backing off
1: from Illiman when he's running away <laughs> from him from the second goal. <laughs> to be fair to West Brom, they went with three at the back, which is not what they've been used to playing this season. And two of those centre-backs were Darnell Furlong and Eric Peters who are both full-backs. So, Maybe we can let them off in that regard. I think this game, though, gives Corbrand a great idea of the job he's got in his hands. It's a massive, massive task. Getting this club going in the right direction again. And I continue to be not 100% convinced that he can do it. Just because the atmosphere at the club is so negative. You saw, it in that, saw that in this game. The booze at half-time and full-time were deafening. And that's not what you want in your first game in charge, is it? And I was saying on Thursday... Corbrand needs to get a good start to try and improve the atmosphere because otherwise the supporters could turn on him quickly because they're so fed up with the way the club's being run. So this was not a good start. And if Corbrand can't turn around this form, then West Brom aren't going to move up the table. And that means they'll be in a relegation battle. And it's becoming increasingly likely, Justin, that West Brom could go down this season. My head keeps saying, surely that won't happen. But the atmosphere at the club is toxic. Morale in the squad is at rock bottom. The people upstairs don't know what they're doing. It's just an absolute shit show, isn't it?
2: <laughs> a very polite way of saying it, but I don't think I can disagree with any anything that you've said. And we um, we've pretty much said it um, in almost every episode since Steve Bruce was sacked. Just how much of a shambles um, the club is, how poorly run it is, and that that eventually um, seeps into uh, it. Eventually seeps into the playing squad. Um, and I think the playing squad, just like it was under Ishmael, they need to take a massive, massive um, yeah, brunt of it, essentially, because they're switching off at key times. Um, and I think they're leaning very heavily on, on the individuals to try and get them out of situations. Um, and again, it, you know, it led to a lot of flack for Steve Bruce. But again, the players have got to take a lot of fault conceding eight goals in the first 15 minutes of games this season is absolutely horrendous for the experience that they've got throughout their their squad. Um, And as I say, it goes from boardroom level right down to um, to the playing level. It is toxic. Um, And it needs gutting. The whole place needs gutting. It needed doing probably after Darren Moore was sacked. Um, But they kept doing what short-termist clubs do. They throw money at it, hope for the best. um, And unfortunately, it's now catching up with them.
1: With all the chaos at West Brom, it's easy to forget how big and much-needed a result this was for Sheffield United. Nothing solves a crisis like
2: going to a club in an even bigger crisis, does it? No, you're absolutely spot on. And I think, um, I think just because of how poor West Brom were, I didn't really make any notes on Sheffield United. But actually, on reflection, they were very good. It was a very professional display. Um, Ilman Dye was unreal. I did actually see some stats about his performance. Um, but if we were to praise anybody else, Ollie McBurney deserves a hell of a lot of praise because... His turnaround in form has been incredible, and he was a constant um, thorn for the West Brom defence. It wasn't like his movement was particularly um, breathtaking, but he he made West Brom's defence look amateur at times just by doing really simple things. Um, and then defensively, they were they were very well-structured and organised, and uh, how quickly they turned over for possession as well was really impressive because that's something that hasn't really been the case over the last few games in this poor run in form. But actually, you saw with the second goal, as I say, turning over possession that quickly, exploiting the space that West Brom have left. It was much like the Sheffield United we saw earlier on in the season. Yeah, we'll let Olive McBurnie
1: off for that air shot leading up to the first <laughs> goal. They, they've got players back from injury now, haven't they? And it means Paul Heckingbottom can play the system that he wants. And they just looked a lot more functional. They defended mm-hmm. really well. Tommy Doyle, Oli Norwood uh, were excellent in midfield, but as you say, Justin, the star of the show was Ilman who was just a joy to watch, wasn't he? On his day, he is absolutely unplayable, and as a defender he must be a nightmare to face, mustn't he? Because he's a brilliant passer, but also if you try and close him down, he will just skip past you, because he's a brilliant <laughs> dribbler, and he was brilliant earlier in the season. Over the past few weeks he's not been playing as well, it's kind of run parallel, I suppose, with how Sheffield United have been playing, but When he's on it, he's arguably the best and most entertaining player in the division. Hopefully, inconsistency isn't going to be a problem like last season, but we'll have to wait and see. Ream Brewster did go off with an injury in this game. He was reportedly close to tears. And Paul Heckingbottom confirmed that it's another hamstring injury, which is really bad luck for him, just as he mm. looked like he was finding form again. Michael Carrick lost his first game in charge of Middlesbrough. Preston beat them 2-1 after a 91st-minute winner from Jordan Story. They got off to a great start going ahead after eight minutes through Tuba Akpom. But after that, Preston put Middlesbrough under a lot of pressure, put them, on the, put them towards the sword. Uh, they got back into the game, Preston and... Borough didn't really have an answer to that
2: no I was a bit disappointed with Middlesbrough um, I think Michael Carrick said he wanted to find a balance between continuity and change but I didn't really see uh, anything that I, I I wanted to see I think is what I'm trying to get at I, I thought um, we'd see a lot more turnover and possession I thought we'd see a lot more structure and balance um, but it was just a bit more of the same that they've been suffering over the past couple of weeks Um, creatively they were really poor, Um, they struggled to get Giles in good areas Um, Isaiah Jones looked really quiet as a right winger, I think Carrick went with a 4-4-2 which was very very strange Um, yeah I was a bit disappointed overall but alas it is his first first game, he's got a lot to do we know he's got a lot to do Um, but I thought Chris Wilder would have left him in a relatively good place but Perhaps not. Yeah, I was was, was quite disappointed with with Middlesbrough in this game.
1: Of course, Emil Rees scored after Middlesbrough were chasing him (laughs) for the whole summer. A great goal by him. And he took the goal out of the ground, didn't he, for crying out loud? (laughs) Yeah, proper wallop. foot like a traction engine, that one. (laughs) Uh, I, I think this game showed Michael Carrick the task that he's got on his hands. I'll start off by saying I don't think it's the same level as the task that Carlos Corbran has at West Brom (laughs) because that is a massive, massive mess. That is a club heading in the wrong direction at a fairly alarming rate because of how it's being run off the pitch. But for me, Carrick is a long-term appointment and this season might be a write-off already. They played a 4-4-2. You can tell he's a Sir Alex Ferguson disciple, can't you? (laughs) That's interesting because... It's obviously very different from the three-five-two 5 2 Wilder usually used. And I'm also not sure it particularly suits the players he's no. got. The main issue he's got is going forwards. They lacked intensity with their attacks. And aside from that Wigan game, they haven't been amazing going forwards in the last few weeks, considering the players they've got. That really shouldn't be the case. Defending set pieces is also a problem. Only Bristol City have conceded more from them uh, than Middlesbrough now. So it's a big job for Carrick. I think it's going to take time before we see them move in the right direction. That's more than likely going to be
2: after the World Cup, I'd say, Justin. Yeah, he he needs that time during the World Cup, doesn't he? That, that two or three weeks they will have with the squad um, just to get his ideas across. Because as I say, a week's probably too... It's not enough time to really um, drill into what you want from the players. But as I say, if you're trying to find that balance between continuity and change, I don't think a 4 was the right solution. Um, I just think it limits the squad... Um, or what the squad has, you know, they've got a they've got a good, a really good foundation player three five two in some capacity, um, and obviously Chris Wilder built the pot, built them to to, to be a counter pressing counter attacking team, turn teams over quickly, um, and I just felt Michael Carrick could have done that in a similar system, um, but as I say, I'm not really sure what Carrick's going to try and get across. We just need a little bit more time to see what he wants from the team. But as I say, yeah, it is it is a big job, and I hope hopefully. He's learned a bit of a lesson with this uh, with this defeat. This was just Preston's second win at home this season. Not a spectacular
1: performance by any means, but an important three points for that Monta.
2: Yeah, you'd argue that they've played better and drawn nil nil quite a few times this uh, this season. Certainly drawn 0 so. nil quite a few times. <laughs> exactly, they've created a lot more in those nil 0s than they than they did in this game. But um, it was a good win nonetheless, and um, I don't think you could take too much away from it. Other than it's goals at home obviously we spoke to Ben HT last week and he was desperate to see some goals at home so thankfully they had two which is great great business obviously a last minute or a towards the last minute winner as well from Jordan Story Um, yeah it was a decent performance I don't think Middlesbrough offered too much for really Preston to counter Um, I think if if I was to criticise Preston probably yeah they weren't at their best Um, and I thought Freddie Woodman could have done a lot more with that corner again we said that um, a couple of weeks ago. Just if you get a corner that's bouncing in the six-yard box, keep got going kind to of deal with it. Um, that worries me a little bit.
1: A 94th minute winner from Anasarari gave Burnley a 2-1 win against Reading. Reading were ahead before the second half comeback by the Clarets. We'll begin this game by talking about the huge, gigantic, bulbous elephant in the room, which was an absolute stonewall penalty not given to <laughs> Reading. This was when the score was one all as well. How bad
2: a decision was this Justin? yeah it was it was terrible um and the referee was nowhere near the play either which worried me a lot more um and player reactions tell you a lot and if you if you get the ball you just play on don't you but Ian Martins arms immediately go up saying i'm not touched him which tells me you've kicked him um yeah it was a it was a terrible decision and may well have cost reading a point or um or three points because you know, if Reading go 2-1 up towards the end of the game or in the second half, I could see them seeing the game out. They're, they've been very good at this season. So, yeah, it's frustrating for them. And I think the, the worst thing is we didn't get to see you've been Paul Linced clip um, that Reading fans have been circulating. circulating. That would have been good.
1: Yeah, that would have been really good. You know, it's a bad decision as well. When the opposition manager admits it's a penalty, Vincent Gromany, fair play to him, even came out and said, yeah, that was a penalty. You said the referee wasn't in a good position. I thought he was. My memory may be failing me there, but from what I saw, I thought he was quite close to the foul. He looked too far away. I don't know. I don't know. But either way, it was a clear penalty. I don't know how it's not been given. It's plain as day, and Paul Ince has every right to be very aggrieved with that decision. Burnley were the better side, though. They weren't in top gear here, but dominated possession, as you'd expect, and had the better chances. I thought the introduction of Manuel Benson was a turning point. He scored the equaliser and then set up the winner, which was an amazing assist, by the way, outside of the mm. foot cross. Mm. Basically put it on a plate for Zarori. Uh, And to do that in the 94th minute as well, incredible. But he's one of many Burnley players who um, have come in in the summer and look very, very talented.
2: Yeah, and I still don't think we've seen the best of him because there's a lot that needs to be blended in. There's a lot that needs to understand and get used to the style of play from Vincent Kompany. Um, And even in this game. Company wasn't playing his best 11 because both Jack Cork and Josh Cullen weren't in that midfield but if you've got players who can change games um, to change tight games to come off from uh, uh, come off uh, the bench for it's a, it's a massive massive asset and these players are growing in confidence obviously you saw with Benson um, he's shown glimpses, Nathan Teller's been fantastic for most of the seasons, so we're always starting to um, grow into the Championship as well, it's really really impressive and as I say it's, it's a nice change from the Sean Dyche era from from I know it's a joke, from Brexit ball, from signing British base players. So If you sign players from the continent, you can blend them in. They do do well. And they're settling in nicely. They're settling in really nicely.
1: Yeah, this win keeps Burnley top of the league. I've seen a lot of people this week saying things like, well, it's easy to do that when you've got parachute payments. But I don't mm-hmm. think that gives Burnley and Vincent Company enough credit for how well mm. they're doing. Yes, they've got parachute payments. And if you ask me, they should be scrapped. But it's not like Burnley have gone out and spent ten million on a player who really should be playing in the Premier League. They have spent a fair bit of money, but they've spent it on young players, and the most expensive was Anna Sorori, who was three and a half million. I'm very aware that's a lot of money for some clubs at this level, but not for a parachute payment team, as we've seen over the past few seasons. Also, and this is probably the most important point of all, they sold more than sixty million pounds worth of Talent in the summer, uh, as well as getting some big names off the wage budget, so they've got every right to spend a fair bit of money, but they haven't gone crazy, have they? So they're not parachute payments FC at all. But even if they were to completely disregard the job company is doing, is ridiculous because it's a very young squad had to integrate a load of new players and get them playing a very different style, and they're sat top of the league quite comfortably. Look, the most likely team to win the league at the moment, and. That's fairly incredible, isn't it? Um, but let's talk Reading. Just one win in six for them now. They've dropped down to 11th after being top at one point. Do you see them continuing to slide down the table, Justin?
2: Um, slide down the table. I mean, they've slid down the table. They were around third, weren't they, a few weeks ago. Now they've dropped down to 11th. So, I mean, that, that is a slide down the table and it's something that we did We did um, wonder would be the case. But I think if Reading play. To a similar standard to this in, in other games. I think they'll get results. Um, I thought they were hard done by. I think if I was to criticise him a, a, a little bit in appalling, is to take the shackles off some of the players a little bit and allow them to to express themselves. But at the same time, the football they've been playing has been very successful. Um, they just need to find a balance. Obviously, it's eight wins, eight losses and one draw at the moment. Um, it's just finding that balance between between the team. And they have been through a rough patch with injuries. They are starting to get players back. Um, so I'm not too worried. I think if they go if they continue this run um, and they are struggling in the next uh, few games, then yeah, OK, I would be concerned. But... Yeah, it's only until it's only until then that you start to start to raise a few eyebrows. On Friday night, Birmingham pulled off somewhat of a shock win by beating QPR
1: two nil. Some will say it's a shock, but not if you're Justin Peach, who called this one on Thursday. <laughs> it's the only one I got right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one we both got right. <laughs> what do we know? What do we know? Uh, Birmingham defended very well, didn't they? QPR had plenty of shots, but aside from the penalty, they weren't really causing Birmingham too many problems, were they? Austin Trusty scored a wonder goal, a backhill lob <laughs> from the penalty spot. Hang on, Justin. It get... <laughs> was, was an unbelievable goal, Justin. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I was yeah. going to ask how you're ranking that against some of the worldies we've <laughs> already seen this season, but I'm guessing not very highly.
2: It was a good goal, but it's just putting it into an area and if you've got a player who even admits himself that he was he didn't mean to shoot um, or score um, then perhaps you can you consider it a worldie Um, but it was a a good goal and and Birmingham were fully deserving of it Um, I just I think yeah I don't think he'll score better goals than that because he's centre-half but I don't think you can I think you discredit the wonder goals that have been scored if you consider that a wonder goal that's what I'll say there's, a, there's definitely a fair bit of fortune that goes into it, but he's still a mar- <laughs> he's still a
1: marvellous bit of skill. Yeah, yeah. At no point did he know where the goalkeeper was. So I agree with you. He was just trying to help it on goalwards. And he, as you say, he even admitted that he didn't mean it after the game. So he is very lucky that Seni Dieng was in no man's land. But at the same time, it's a beautiful goal. I don't think Ishmael Asar or Brad Parts will feel too threatened about having another goal of the season (laughs) contender, though. But it's just two losses from 10 games now for Birmingham, just in 12th in the table. And it really is impressive how well they're doing, Into it? I think they've been massively helped by that midfield they've got. Taref Chung provides the creativity, the carrying of the ball, set pieces, pretty much everything actually going forwards. You've got Christian Bielik, I've always said it, when fit. He's a Premier League player. My mind's not changed on that because he brings the physicality and the passing from deep that makes him a brilliant player. And then I also really like Hannibal Medjury and his ability to just kick people. I don't think I'm getting carried away, Justin, when I say it's arguably the best midfield in the division. And it's quite remarkable that we're saying that about a side who many were tipping to struggle this season. But I honestly think this midfield could seamlessly transfer over into any midfield in the division because it's full of running, energy, technical ability they're all young lads as well which makes it even more impressive i do worry about what happens if any of them picks up an injury but right now they're powering birmingham's push up the table aren't they um what have you got to say on birmingham
2: yeah, I mean, I was really impressed with them. I think the the, the intensity they played within the first 15 minutes pretty much won them the game, because obviously QPR struggled. Um, but you're quite right. I, I was just thinking then, trying to compare over the midfields to, to that midfield three, I think Cullen, Cork and uh, Brownhill at Burnley, probably in and around there. But I think you might be right. I think it is probably one of the best midfield threes in the in division, and um, there's a really nice blend of, of physicality, energy, um, tenacity, shit and uh, composure. It's a really nice balanced midfield, and I, I can't disagree with that. It's a good, it's a good, uh, a good assessment. I'll give you that. Cheers, mate.
1: Uh, <laughs> nice to know I'm doing something right. <laughs> Mick Beale said after the game that everything that could have gone wrong actually went wrong for QPR. It was a really bad night. I thought that was
2: quite harsh, Justin. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I think I sort of agree with him because if you consider the fact that if Sonny Dieng isn't caught in between the uh, penalty spot and the the goal, um, he catches that trusty that trusty goal, and then Q, uh, qPR are, are on that um, on another night. I think John Roddy is an incredible goalkeeper still, and I thought Lyndon Dykes hit his penalty very well uh, on a, on another night. That goes in. Um, I just think it was a it was a bad night for for QPR. Picked up a couple of injuries as well, which is a bit of a concern. Um, so I think that assessment is fairly accurate, but I don't think it's doom and gloom. Did predict a performance slump, and I do think they are going to go through one. Um, I just think that's natural with most teams because QPR haven't had one yet. So I just think they're going to enter one now or in or going into one now, and I think yeah, it will take some doing to to get out of it before the World Cup. What so you think this is going to continue? Do you this? Well, I, I say continue. It's one result, but do you think mm. this is possibly the start of more poor results? Um, poor results, not necessarily poor results. Maybe some below par performances because as I say that they've picked up a couple of injuries. Um, it's a busy schedule, uh, and I just think it might catch up with them because I think they're the only team so far that have impressed me in terms of being able to um, avoid. Injuries to key players, apart from Chris Willick, obviously, uh, and maintain a level of consistency and intensity. Um, they're the only team that's really done that other than Burnley um, without picking up injuries. So I just think every team's going to go through one. I think QPR is just, just about to head into theirs now and it may, may impact results. Um, I think Bill pointed out the last couple of waypoints haven't been great either. So um, yeah, I think they'll get out of it. It just depends when. Interesting.
1: Justin, let's take a quick break. After that, we'll talk about Norwich getting back to winning ways and Watford making it back-to-back wins. Welcome back to the second-tier podcast. In the Alex Neil derby, Norwich got back to winning ways by beating Stoke 3-1. A scoreline that definitely flatters Norwich. Stoke could have scored three or four themselves if they had the shooting boots on, Justin.
2: Yeah, it was a weird game, wasn't it? Um, a really weird game, in fact. I think I think you go home happy if you're a Norwich fan. I think Dean Smith said himself that hopefully this this sparks a, a turning point. But I don't know if it does because I just I don't I wasn't particularly impressed by Norwich, and that's not to um, you know shit on him after picking up three points for the first time in eight games. Um, I just don't think they were great. Um, and obviously with, with Stoke, the amount of chances that Stoke had and missed, that would concern me. But as I say, it's, it's three points, winning breeds confidence, and and, and it could be to any point. Um, I just, you know, they could see a lot of chances, which again is, is worry. Big chances as well.
1: Some nice goals though. That one-two mm-hmm. for Anne Ramsey's second goal was unreal. The death layoff by Timu Puki. Does it, does it deserve a Ryan Dilk's chef's kiss? Not sure. I'd say no, because I want that to be safe for special occasions, but it was very tasty. Uh, the third goal was actually quite nice as well with the through ball by Todd Campbell. Mm. There were glimpses of the Norwich of old here, yeah. but over the entire 90 minutes, there were more glimpses of the Norwich of the last few weeks. It was undeniably a much needed three points for Norwich, but they're definitely not out the woods yet, are they? I don't think you'd be anyway after winning just one game, considering the run they've been on, but especially not after a performance like that, where they could have been a lot better. I fear scoring goals might be becoming a problem for Stoke, Justin. Only five teams have scored fewer goals than them now, and when you consider the attacking players they've got, that's really quite poor, isn't it? Prior to this season, Dwight Gale had one of the best goals to games uh, ratios in Championship history, averaging more than a goal every two games. He's played 16 games this season and hasn't scored. Liam Delap is one of the most highly rated teenagers in the country. He's got one goal. Josh Brown got double heel. Uh, I've called him Josh Brown again, I haven't said Jacob yeah. Brown <laughs> uh, got do- double figures last season. He's on two. In fact, I think basically we can sum it up by saying Lewis Baker is the top scorer of four goals. It's, it's very, very underwhelming, isn't it? As usual with Stoke, mm-hmm. injuries haven't helped, but... They should still be doing a lot better, shouldn't they? A late Jao Pedro goal gave Watford a 1-0 win away at Wigan. An ugly win, I think that's fair to say. Uh, Watford were missing Keenan Davis, who's such an important player for them. He really knits everything together. I liked what I saw of Samuel Kalou when he came on. But it is back-to-back wins for the first time this season for Watford, which I think is quite important. Do you think they're turning a corner? Under Slaven Bilic, or even indicating to turn around that corner, Justin, or if they not even got the damn indicator on yet,
2: they might be checking their blind spots, making sure they're not hitting a cyclist, maybe. Um, but that, yeah, I think that's a good way of assessing it because it wasn't a vintage performance; it wasn't Watford we saw of last week. Um, but if you go back to that Stoke game, they lost the following game, didn't they? Um, so this is this is a good this is a good place to be, I think. Um, picking up back to back wins, winning ugly. Um, and I know I thought Wigan had the, the better chances and it would create some good chances, but the, Watford didn't give too many up, um, which is again a, a, is a good place to be. Um, but as I say, it's a turning point. There was some good, there was a good moment. I think there was a good interchange between Sarr and Bayo in the first half. So we saw glimpses. Um, and at the minute, right now, it's just about building consistency. That's what Watford need. That's what they haven't had at any point in the season. Back to back wins, back to back clean sheets. It's massive.
1: Yeah, they definitely have had a consistency, have they? So Slim and Village will be absolutely buzzing with this result. Four straight losses for Wigan. Home form continues to be a problem for them with just the one win on the board. The bad news is they've got another home game in, in the coming week. <laughs> the good news is it's Stoke, who are very unpredictable. So make it that way you will. In what could be the last game at the Coventry Building Society Arena in a while, more on that shortly, Coventry were beaten 2-1 by Blackpool, who came from a goal down. Blackpool could have been... up after the first 10 minutes. They had three brilliant chances. Um, But it was Coventry who went ahead with a brilliant team goal. I'm surprised more people haven't been talking about this one. It's absolutely filthy, Justin. Mm-hmm. When I was re-watching this game, I had to rewind it and watch it again. I very rarely do that when I rewatch the games. But it was O'Hare with a tasty flick to Palmer, who then did a very nice nutmeg. A really nice team goal. A great header by Gary Medine to equalise. And then it was Jerry Yates who scored the winner late on. He's now top of the goal-scoring charts with nine goals for the season. I'm not sure many people would have backed him to be top
2: scorer, but he's had a remarkable start, hasn't he? Yeah, he's exceeded his, his goal tally for last season in uh, half the amount of games, I think, um, which is impressive. Um, I think Michael Apperton deserves a lot of credit for sticking him on the right wing and just allowing him just to exploit space. Um, a bit like Andy uh, Andy Viman, I don't think they're technically gifted footballers, him or, him or Jerry Yates, but... Um, they can sniff out goals, and that's a that's a very important attribute to have for a goal scorer. Um, so I think that's that's really getting the best out of Yates. And as I say, it's it's credit to Mike captain who certainly would have got a lot of flack earlier on in the season. But tactically, I think he, I think he knows how to get the best out of wide players. You look at Theo Corbiano, for example; who's doing very well. But yeah, Jerry Yates, exceeding expectation. I didn't even give him uh, a second thought. He wasn't even in my subconscious when I was picking out golden boot winners. So fair play to to Jerry Yates.
1: I think you could even make an argument that he wouldn't that there were other players who I would have predicted score the most goals for Blackpool this season as opposed to Jerry Yates. But mm. it's it's even more remarkable because I'm not actually sure how good a player Jerry Yates actually is. <laughs> he's got plenty of pace and he works hard, but having watched quite a bit of him, he's he's never really struck me as one of the best strikers in the division. In fact, I was amazed in the week to see that Premier League clubs are apparently looking mm-hmm. at him. I think he's a good championship striker, but I don't think he's particularly much more than that, if I'm being completely honest. So I'll certainly be very surprised if he's still in the conversation for top scorers as the season goes on. And now it sounds like I think he's shit when when (laughs) when I'm meant to be praising him. He's done remarkably well so far. As I say, I think he's a good player, a good striker at this level, possibly even a very good player at this level. But... um, yeah, whether he's much more than that, I'm not too sure. But he deserves full credit for, you know, nine goals after so many games this season. Huddersfield won, Millwall nil. The goal came from Yuta Nakayama, or the Japanese left-sided center half as Mark Fotheringham called him a few weeks ago. Um, the question is, did ya Nakayama mean it, Justin? <laughs> of
2: course he didn't. Of course he didn't. You could see from his body position, he was trying to whip it in for, I think it was Danny Ward. Um, and he got it all wrong and... Or Derby got it all right. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was a it was a weird one. It was such a weird cross as well because it, it didn't get the connection at all that he wanted. Um, so I'm surprised it ended up in the back of the net. But that's Huddersfield's first goal from open play under Mark Fodderingham.
1: Fuck off, really? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> Sorry for swearing as well. I'm I, I was honestly amazed by that. I did not know that. Yep. That's it. That's incredible. What a goal as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I see what you mean about um... <laughs> I'm so annoyed at myself for dropping the F-bomb but I think it deserved it after hearing that stat. Uh, Yeah Nakayama I can see what you mean about him trying to whip it and it just didn't whip at all did it? It's just gone straight into the back of the net and the thing is if that was a cross which I I think it was it's an awful cross it's a really bad cross so yeah that is uh, very remarkable but I think this was better from Huddersfield once it got to be said Millwall were really poor
2: but they still had a job to do and they did it, didn't they? Yeah, they, they kept Millwall out. I think it was just that Tyler Barry chance that nearly dribbled over the line um, towards the end of the game. That was the really big chance that Millwall had. Um, the rest was just half chances. And I think if you're trying to get a side out of the relegation zone, um, is, you know, take note, Carlos Corbran, coincidentally, um, you've got to solidify them. And Mark Fotheringham is slowly doing that. I think the other end of the pitch is where it, wor- it, where it worries me. Because obviously, if that's their first goal from open play under Fotheringham this season, um, well, under his tenure, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a concern. I know they got Thomas who can whip in balls, but if you're winning by scoring accidental crosses and not actually creating good chances yourself, because I don't think Huddersfield created too many. Um, although um, George Long was the busiest of the keepers, um, yeah, I think it is a bit of a concern. But it's baby steps, um, which is a yeah a much better place to be compared to where they were weeks ago. Yeah, I'm not going to get carried
1: away with them at all just yet because I think this Huddersfield side has still got a long way to go but a massive, massive three points for them. Millwall were very flat. Weren't they? Weird, considering they just won four on the bounce. Away form has been a real problem with them, just the one win on the road. Cardiff ended a three-game losing streak by beating Rotherham 1-0. A nice solo goal by Jaden Filagin-Bedais. I thought he wasted the opportunity (laughs) initially, but he had it under control, didn't he? And uh, in the end, rounded off a very nice goal. This is possibly the most one-sided game of the weekend. Cardiff will be wondering how it was only 1-0, because... They should have scored more, and Rotherham offered absolutely nothing. Only had three shots, none of which were on target. But you know, Cardiff had a job to do, <laughs> similar to other teams we mentioned here. They had a job to do, and they did it, didn't they?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you just want to sometimes ring some of the players at Cardiff and just, just put chances in the back of the net. Um, they'd be a far, they'd be in a far better position um, in the league, and Steve Morrison might have his job still if they were more productive um, in terms of converting chances. But yeah, it, it was a it was a good performance, a good creative performance in that final third. The midfield three won them the game for me. Uh, really good, talented midfield covered a lot of ground, um, and and they were yeah good at turning possession over as well. But Andy Rinnamotta was was ridiculous. He covered every square inch of the of the pitch, um, and as I say, the midfield won won Cardiff the game. Territories were, were were all Cardiff's, and finally in the we both hate Cardiff derby, Bristol City
1: and Swansea drew one all. <laughs> very even game I don't have much
2: else to say on this one Justin yeah um, I think uh, Olivier and uh, um, uh somersaulting after a deflected goal it's a bit of an over celebration maybe I think that's all I can take from it there was a clip of a Swansea fan giving it large as well that made me laugh um, to the Bristol City fans when they scored um, so yeah not too much to take away from it other than teams are fairly even I think yeah they were very even in this game right now it's time for this <laughs>
1: Yes, it's time for the news and Coventry have confirmed the club is exploring alternative backup plans to host Tuesday's game against Blackburn in the event of the Coventry Building Society Arena being unavailable. It's because the company which owns it is on the brink of administration has been given until Monday to secure funding or find a buyer. The BBC says Coventry are worried they could be locked out of the ground the telegraph is reporting Walsall could be a potential ground sharing option although the poundland bescott stadium is a rather unfortunate name considering <laughs> the parties involved um coventry fans have been through the ringer haven't they
2: Yes. it's um I, it's very difficult to, to sum up um because i don't think i don't think any football fans have been through what coventry fans have been through over the years over the last 10 years um having to ground share with with several teams just getting back to the rico, rico the rico the cbs um uh, and then it going tits up again i think it's just a very very important case for football clubs to ensure that they are protected in terms of their home grounds and ensure that they are registered community assets so they can't be sold on or um or, or locked out essentially, or, or not owning the not owning of the grounds. Um, it's, it's a very important lesson to have, but I just hope that the ownership have a solution in place because they can't face any more disruptions. Um, if they do, I do worry for their season um, because we've seen issues from um, from earlier on with the pitch impacting them now. Um, so it's yeah frustrating, kind of more or less uh, more so. Feel sorry for the fans because it's a ridiculous situation to be in once again.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, actually, what, what you're saying at the start there. I think Coventry fans have been through more than pretty much any other group of fans in the country, apart from, obviously, extreme cases like Bury, for example. Because mm-hmm. having been forced to travel to other cities to watch your team play home games is just... It should be happening in the first place, but it's happened to Coventry on more than one occasion now, hasn't mm. it? And the fact it keeps happening. I, I thought this was it. I thought it was over and done with that saga, but now they're having to potentially do it again. It's really, really sad, because imagine if Coventry didn't have these problems. Has it, has it stunted their growth as a football club? Because despite everything that's going on, they're still going in the right direction, but if they had just... You know, been playing home games at Coventry for the past few seasons could they potentially have ended up even higher we all know the pitch yeah. situation in, earlier in the season um, certainly cost them points and now this is happening again so it's really really unfortunate and hopefully it does get sorted out and they do play in Coventry on Tuesday night but from the sounds of it that might not be the case so yeah Very, very, very frustrating, actually, that this keeps happening. Liam Rosinia looks set to be named as the new hall manager. It reportedly could be announced in the coming days. You spoke about this on Thursday, Justin. I can't remember if I gave my thoughts or not, but I think it's a good appointment. Rosinia, for me, is one of the most highly rated coaches out there right now. Um, Did a great job as Rain Rooney's number two at Derby was given the head coach role. And I don't think it's his fault that things didn't work out in that particular situation. Because when Derby were playing under Rosinia and Rooney last season, they were great, weren't they? Mm. If it wasn't for, you know, everything that happened off the pitch, then I think he really could have uh, took Derby to another level. Um And he's a really good talker as well in the media, comes across very well when he does interviews and and he comes across as a great thinker of the game as well. So I'm really excited to see how he does at Hull. Hopefully he's given time there. Not sure if he will, um, but he's a fan favourite in he's very highly thought of in that part of the world. So I'm excited to see what he can do there. And if he's given time, then he may be the right person to lead the Hull revolution that we're currently seeing uh, Mark Hudson says he's in talks with Cardiff owner Vincent Tan and chairman Mamet Dalman about his long-term future the BBC says Cardiff are not believed to be actively looking for a permanent
2: successor other than Hudson for the time being uh, what are you thinking
1: with that one Justin?
2: If that's the case why don't they just give Hudson the job until the end of the season like they did with Morrison last season or start interviewing candidates because there are good there are good coaches available um, a couple of them have been picked up already I think Cardiff have got a good uh, foundation of a squad to really kick on under the right coach under the right continuity um, so I just it's just a frustrating thing to hear I think if you're going to give Hudson the job give him the job don't leave him in limbo don't leave the squad in limbo don't leave the club in limbo the fans are in limbo there's no there's no clarity coming from the from the club it's um, it's really shoddy work and it's it's disappointing and in these situations you need someone decisive to come in and um, say right you're the manager you're going to be the manager until the end of the season let's build from here they haven't done that and I feel for Mark Goodson it's disappointing
1: Wiggins chief exec says the club is not up for sale amid speculation about their financial situation it's after they were late paying players salaries but the club insists the delay was due to a banking process which took longer than expected leave that there and finally the day of mail reports West Brommer in talks with private equity firm MSD Holdings about borrowing up to 25 million pounds to get funds ahead of the January transfer window and this instantly gives me anxiety Justin why do they need to borrow money why do they think the way forward as a football club is by just throwing money at it
2: yep yeah, and um, why do they think a loan is a good idea especially with interest rates being so high at the moment um yeah I mean it it's one of the sort of reasons as to why Derby ended up in administration um, I'm not saying that's a thing but uh, that that might be a thing for West Brom but I know fans have been concerned of it um, of late and I'm not trying to um, intensify that aspect but if your club's asking for loans to pay for players especially in a January window when everyone's prices are hiked red flag red flag red flag don't do it stick with what you got or get some loans in do not take loans out to pay for players it is horrendous Yeah, it's it's very
1: strange that they would consider doing this in the first place because, you know, West Brom don't have a particularly great record of (laughs) selling these players on, do they, for profit? So they could potentially be getting themselves into a twenty-five million pound black hole that uh, doesn't have much coming in the other direction, which is back into West Brom's pockets. So yeah, I'd be very concerned about this news and whether it does happen or not why do they think you've got to throw money at it? You look at the most successful clubs, the most successfully run clubs in the country, the likes of, you know, Brentford, Brighton. They work with small budgets and make money by selling off players, don't they? But West Brom are clearly one of those clubs who... Um, aren't thinking like that for some reason uh, justin let's do the polls this is the part of the show where we give the listeners three questions on twitter because we want to get their thoughts on everything to do with the championship so the first question we asked was this who's going to win the golden boot ben barrett and diaz carlton morris josh Sargent, and jerry yates now we will add the disclaimer here that me and justin were a, a bit annoyed that Twitter only gives you four options Mm -hmm. um, because we'd, of course, like to give more options. So we gave who we thought were the four most likely options, but I fully accept that. Just looking at the replies, other people may have other contenders in mind. But out of those four, who would you go for, Justin?
2: Um, I can't remember who he said, so I'm just going to throw a name in there. I would say Jay Rodriguez.
1: did say Jay Rodriguez, so good one. <laughs> uh, 46% of people said Ben Barrett and Diaz. 23% said Josh Sargent. 18% said Jerry Yates. 13% said Carlton Morris. I think only McBurney might be a decent shout at this point because he's mm-hmm. in fantastic form. Um, who's the most mid-table team in the Championship? Bristol City, Millwall or Preston?
2: I think if you were to look up a dictionary definition of it, it would be Preston, wouldn't it? Um Millwall have been that contender for a few years, but they might be going up the league. And Bristol City have been a lower mid-table team, but they could well be the mid-tablers. But yeah, you've got to say Preston. Yeah, I think Preston are the obvious winners here, aren't they? <laughs> I
1: was, I felt a bit harsh putting Millwall in there, to be honest, because I feel like they're kind of moving away from that. But they may mm. have another season where they struggle to shift that kind of tag uh, 55% of people said Preston 25% said Millwall 20%
2: said Bristol City
1: and finally Halloween like it or bin it?
2: I love it I love Halloween it's great um, I think if you do it properly and dress it properly it's, it's fantastic I had a Halloween party last year it was great um, yes yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun time of year. I prefer it over like the other crap holidays like Valentine's Day and um, yeah, November 5th etc
1: yeah. Um, uh, our listeners don't agree with you, Justin. 68% said bin it. 32% said like it. Don't mind Halloween. Don't don't really affect my life don't too care. much, to be honest. No, don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> if I was a student still, I'd probably care, but I'm not. I'm a 28 year old man going through a quarter life crisis. Right, now it's time for this.
0: Hi, Simon Griss and Edge.
1: Yes, it's time for Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. Welcome back to the show. Ian Robertson from We Are Luton Town. So I'm going the boys here to name eight of a certain subject. All they've got to do is work together to name all eight. So, for example, if I were to say, name England's last eight opponents at the World Cup, and Ian would say Croatia, that's one down, and Justin would say Belgium, that's another down. But if Justin would say Mongolia, then he'd be out. So what you need to do, chaps, is give me all eight answers without all of you being eliminated. Now, of course, we usually have three people playing this game, but it is just... Justin and Ian, because Ant had to dash off after the first section of the show. So what we'll do is we'll give you an extra life. So if Ian gets one wrong, he's not out. Um, You get the idea. Uh, It's just a matter of weeks now until England triumph in Qatar. So we've got another World Cup themed question for you here. Can you name for me the eight players who played the most minutes for England at the last World Cup? So cast your minds back four years ago to that faithful uh, tournament in Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see how you get on. Justin Peach, you can kick things off.
2: The easiest one is Jordan Pickford.
1: <laughs> yeah, 691 minutes he played. He's the only player who featured in every minute for England. So that's one down. Ian? Harry Kane. Yep, Harry Kane played 574 minutes, perhaps a bit lower down on this list than you might think. He's fifth. Um because I thought he might be a bit higher on there. So there you go, but that's correct. That means you've got two, Justin.
2: You said the World Cup, didn't you? You didn't say last tournament. I did this last week.
1: The World Cup, yeah.
2: Yeah, okay. Um <laughs> Christ. Harry Maguire.
1: Yep, Harry Maguire played the third most minute, six hundred and forty six, back when he was a promising young defender. Um that means you've got five to go, Ian. Sterling sterling is not on the list yeah i was amazed when i saw that as well he uh, played the 10th most minutes i'm guessing i'm guessing he must have been subbed off Mm. quite early in games so that means you've lost your extra life now it's a sudden death boys um five remaining justin
2: john stones played a lot didn't he (laughs)
1: John Stones was, in fact, the outfielder with the most minutes. So you absolutely correct, 647 minutes he played. Uh, Ian.
3: Uh, Rashford.
1: Rashford is nowhere to be seen on this list, I'm afraid. So Ian is out. That means it's Justin as the last man standing. You've got four to go, Justin.
2: Dali Ali was a good player back then.
1: Are you saying Dele Ali? I am. Dele Ali played the 11th most minutes. <sighs> so, unfortunately, you're out. I thought you'd do better than that, boys. I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit disappointed with you there. But it was a difficult one. So, I'd be surprised if you got all of them. The players you were looking for, Kerry Trippier, played the fourth most minutes, of course, scored that free kick in the semi, which continues to be one of the best moments of my life. Um, Jesse Lingard, played the sixth most oh, minutes. Remember on. he when he was one of the first names on the team sheet for England? Strange. Uh, Cal Walker played the seventh oh, most yeah. minutes and then Jordan Henderson played the eighth most minutes. So there you go boys, you've falling foul to Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. Ian, while we were just having a mini break back then, uh, you said you hate Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. Has that changed? No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we should have done better though, to be fair. Look at yeah, eight. yeah. we have just told us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you should have done better.
1: But there we go. That's been the Simon Grayson Take for Later. And this has been the Second Tier Podcast. We'll be back again on Thursday to talk about all the midweek games coming up in the Championship on Tuesday and Wednesday night. So we look forward to seeing you then. But a quick thank you to our guest on the show this week, Ian Robertson from We Are Loten Town. Thank you for your time today, Ian.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having us. We'll be back again on Thursday. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. I've been Ryan Dilks.
2: I've been Justin Peach.
1: And a big thank you
2: for listening.